Well, as Kevin said, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I've been here for a while, so I, I better be. Um, but my name is Andrew Nilsson. I'm the ministry assistant here at Charles River Church. And I am very excited uh, to be with you guys and share with you guys from the Word of God this morning. Waiting. Not many of us like waiting for things, but all of us do it. Right? You know, as I was reading our passage that we're going to look at this morning from the book of Luke, chapter 2, I couldn't help but think about waiting. We're going to meet two people. We're going to meet Simeon and we're going to meet Anna. And these two people are waiting for God. So it got me thinking, how much do we wait? So I did a little bit of research, and full disclaimer, what I'm about to share with you might cause a little bit of discomfort. But let's just think about how much we wait. Did you know that on average you will spend five hours and 35 minutes waiting in line every month? Did you know on average across the country, you'll spend 42 hours waiting in traffic every year? If you're a Bostonian, it's 58. Sorry, guys. Did you know that we will spend about 27 days of our lives waiting for the bus or the subway? Especially if you're on the orange line. Anybody? Preach, right? Did you know we will spend about 43 days of our lives on hold, on the phone? We all wait. It's part of life. The question is, what are we waiting for? So I grew up in Hershey, or near Hershey, Pennsylvania. I actually grew up in uh, Harrisburg. But if any of you guys know anything about Hershey, Pennsylvania, it's the sweetest place on earth, home to Hershey's chocolate, but it's also home to Hershey Park. It's an amusement park that my family and I would frequent during the summers. And believe it or not, we weren't the only ones. It was packed. You know, you walk in, you know the deal. If you've ever been to an amusement park, you wait in lines for four hours across the total of your day, and you really only get about one hour of actual entertainment. You know, you walk up to that line, you see the line, and you immediately do a cost-benefit analysis. You're like, is the cost of me waiting in this line 35 minutes really worth the three seconds down the big slide? I'm not sure. But at Hershey Park, there was one ride that my family and I almost always thought was worth it. It's no longer there, unfortunately, sadly, but it was called Canyon River Rapids. It was this, uh, this, this ride where you would sit with a group of people in this big uh, circular boat, and it was like a bumper boat. You'd be bouncing off the walls, and you're going down this man-made river. Waterfalls are falling into the boat, filling up the boat with water. You're getting water crushed in from the side. You're bouncing around. You are, are, are Because it's circular, you're sitting around with the people you're with, so you're just laughing as you watch them get soaked. Canyon River Rapids was probably my favorite ride growing up. And, and to get there, we would be willing to wait in line in the middle of summer with sweaty, smelly other people that you're bumping into and you don't even know who they are. You get to the, the next turn around the line and it says 45 minutes from this point and you're like, oh no. But it was always worth it because we knew the soaking and the cold and refreshing water that was about to hit us as we went in there. But if you ask my parents, they probably didn't always think it was worth it. But me and my, my, my siblings, we loved it. But here's the point. The point is, the ride was worth the wait. Is what you are waiting for in life worth it? If you were to choose to wait for something, you know, there's certain things in life we can't choose to wait for. Like, if you want to go to an amusement park and you have to wait till you're tall enough to ride the ride, you can't choose to wait for that. You just have to. But there's other things in life that we choose to wait for. By choosing to wait for something, you're saying whatever that is, is valuable to you. It's worth it because you're waiting for it. 
You know, today we're concluding our series. For the last month, we've been in Advent. We've been thinking about Jesus coming to earth as a child. And today we're concluding our series, which we call, O Come, Let Us Adore Him, with this message that Christ is our hope. That Christ is our hope. Now, the way we use hope in our everyday conversational way It might be something like this. Man, I just hope I get a bonus this year at work. But see, the way I just used that word, the way I just used hope, I'm telling you what I want, but there's no guarantee that it's coming, right? But if I were to say, man, I hope my paycheck arrives very soon, there's a little bit of a guarantee. You're, you're You're not questioning whether it's coming. You know you did the work. You're just expectantly waiting. And that's the way the Bible uses the word hope. It's not just this like, I wish this happens. No, it's like, I know it's going to happen because God declared it and I'm expectantly waiting. I'm waiting for it to arrive. Just like I knew that Canyon River Rapids was worth the wait, I want you to know that Jesus was worth the wait. Jesus is our hope. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are in your presence right now. Lord, as we look into what the author Luke has just shown us with Simeon and Anna, Lord, I just pray and ask that you would teach us and show us that you really are worth the wait, Lord God. Not only that, you are our hope, Jesus, and you're, you're our hope because of what you do for us. You're our hope because of what you are, Savior of the world. And so, Lord, I just pray and I just ask that today that you would quicken my words, quicken my mind, Use this vessel of mine, Lord, for your glory, for your sake, for your honor. Would you speak through me? And would you open all of our ears, Lord, to hear what you have to say to us today? We ask this, we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So sometimes here at Charles River Church, we will read the entire scripture from beginning to end just up front so you guys can see it. But today I want us to kind of let it unfold um, like a scene in a movie. We're watching it bit by bit, part by part. And so I'm going to read our first section. And just to give you a little background, you know, the, the story of Jesus. He's, he comes, he's born in a manger. Most of us are very familiar with that story. But we're, most of us are probably not so familiar with the story we're going to read today. This is what happens after Jesus is born. Uh, His parents, Mary and Joseph, they're coming to dedicate him at the temple. They're coming to present him before the Lord. So if you have a Bible, um, I'd invite you to open up with me to Luke chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 22. And if not, the verses will appear on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there. Verse 22 from chapter 2 of Luke. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, here they are, they're coming to the temple, and they're coming to the temple for one purpose. They're coming to dedicate their firstborn son, Jesus. Now, if you guys have been around Charles River Church a little while, you've seen some child dedications. And basically what happens in these child dedications is we welcome families up who have children and, (coughs) excuse me, they just stand up here and uh, basically what they're doing is they're declaring before the church body that they want to honor the Lord by raising their child according to the Lord. 
But this dedication, what we're, read, what we're reading here, is a little bit different. And I want us to look at that this morning. Uh, Jesus is being brought to the temple, um, and it says this. It says in verse 23, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. If you ever read in the Bible, you know, Kevin was telling us about how he wants us as a church family to start reading the Bible more this year. Here's a little tip. If you're reading in the New Testament and you hear somebody write down, it is written, that's a key. And that's a key that whatever they're about to say is pointing back to the Old Testament. So here's Luke, he's saying, it is written, every firstborn child is to be presented before the Lord. And so what he's actually pointing to is this story in Exodus. If we can get that next scripture up there. Um, if you guys know the Bible, uh, you know that uh, God rescues his people in the Old Testament out of Egypt. He rescues them from slavery. And right after he rescues them from slavery, he, he wants um, to set up his people to know that he is with them. And one of the things he has is this child dedication. And I want us to look, about, look at what that child dedication means. Let's read uh, verses 14 through 16 here. And when in that time uh, come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So what's happening here in this child dedication, it's a practice that the Israelites have been practicing for a long time. And what they essentially are doing is they are reenacting what happened at the Exodus to remember what God did. Because as you might remember, they were in slavery in Egypt and God brought plagues to show the Egyptians that, that these are his people and they must let them go. And the final plague, the final judgment was this killing of the firstborn. But for the Israelites, they were spared by the blood of a lamb over the doorposts. And so them bringing Jesus to the temple is, is them saying, Lord, we remember what you did in the Exodus. Why am I giving you all this background? Why am I telling you all this? Is this even uh, uh, like going to tell us more about what we're learning today? It does. It tells us something about hope. So if you're taking notes today, I want to share with you what this first lesson is. Hope remembers what God has done. I'll say that again for you. Hope remembers what God has done. Waiting can be excruciating sometimes, especially in your faith. Some of you here today might be saying, I've been waiting for a long time for, for, for Jesus to make a difference in my life, and I don't know if he is. Or I've been in this season of my life where things have just felt so dry. How do I know that God is still with me? Hope remembers what God has done. We have to look back in our lives sometimes and look at what God has done, where he's been faithful in the past, sometimes to help us in the moments where it looks like, where are you, God? But some of you might rightly be thinking, Andrew, I've never seen God be faithful in my life. I don't know what that, what that even means. I don't even know who, who, who this God is. Well, that's the beauty of our God working in history because we have the scriptures. We can look how faithful he was to his people in the Exodus. We can look how faithful he was in bringing Jesus to us. We can even look at how faithful he's been in the lives of the people around us. So if you don't have an example in your own life of seeing God's faithfulness, maybe look to your neighbor next to you and ask, how has God been faithful in your life? Because we must remember what God has done. 
But we're going to learn a second lesson about what hope does. Let's look at verse 24. And it says, And offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So remember I told you they're supposed to sacrifice something just to, to remember that God killed the Egyptian uh, firstborns. They're supposed to sacrifice something but to redeem their firstborn. And uh, Luke is telling us something here because if I were to uh, look back into the Old Testament in Leviticus where it talks about what, you're, what, what the animals are that you're supposed to bring to sacrifice, it says that you're supposed to bring a lamb and a dove. But here we see Mary and Joseph bringing two pigeons. The reason they bring in two pigeons or two doves is because in that same law where it said you're supposed to bring a lamb and a pigeon, it also said, but if you're not a person of means, if you're poor, bring two turtle doves instead and sacrifice those. What Luke is trying to tell us by just that simple line is that Mary and Joseph, they're not wealthy. And here's our second lesson about what hope does. Hope gives in faith. Hope gives in faith. Some of you might be here today and you might be in Mary and Joseph's shoes. You might be saying, Andrew, I don't have a lot to give. I don't make a lot of money. Maybe I'll wait until I make a little bit more and then, and then I'll give, and then I'll give freely. Folks, I've been there, and to be honest, it doesn't matter how much you make because there's always more to be had. Hope gives out of what we have, even if it's a little. We might even think to ourselves, we might be tempted to say, well, I'm kind of a special case. You know, kind of like the whole Mary thing. Can you imagine Mary saying like, well, God, you know, I don't have a lot of money to give, but I did carry your child for nine months. I think I, I kind of give in other ways. And that's great, that's awesome. But we don't see Mary and Joseph claiming any kind of exemption here. They're giving out of what they have. You know, today is our, our last day to collect the Christmas offering here at our church. You may have seen the insert um, in your bulletin this morning. It looks like this. And this is a special offering that we do here at the church every year, and it's to give to those who are unable to support for themselves. Uh, we use it uh, this year, um, we're using it for the next generation we're using it to, to raise up the next generation. The other thing we're using it for is international missions. And so I want to just encourage you, I want to ask you this morning, church body, hope gives in faith. And it's not because God ha uh, needs what we have. It's because what we do with our money displays where we place our hope. If I take 50% of my paycheck and put it into a retirement fund every month, where have I placed my hope? Money displays where we have placed our hope. Charles River Church, let's place our hope in God and his provision to us and to others through giving faithfully. Now we know why Mary and Joseph have come to the temple. They've come because they want to present their baby. Luke has set the scene, but now he wants to grab our attention. Let's read on in our story and see what happens next. Start with me in verse 25 here. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. You know, I said Luke wants to get our attention. You know, when it says, now there was a man, it's 
kind of softly read. But if we were to look at what, what Luke wrote in the Greek, you know what he says? He says, behold, there was a man. He's like, hello, wake up. Behold, I'm about to tell you something really important. And he starts telling us about a pretty ordinary man. His name is Simeon. Now, Simeon, we, we learned a few things about him from what Luke told us. We learned that he's a righteous man and a devout man. But you know what? Simeon wasn't a rabbi or a priest. Because I think the temptation for us to say is, you know, the Holy Spirit revealed something special to him. The temptation to say, well, see, I don't have that kind of relationship with God. But see, Simeon wasn't a rabbi or a priest. He was an ordinary person like yourself and like me. And God chose to reveal something to him. Why? Because he was righteous and devout. Not because of status or title or anything like that. We learn something else about Simeon. We, we learn that he says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word consolation, you know, we could also translate it as comfort in saying he's waiting for the comfort of Israel. And, and it kind of gets defined later, like what is that comfort? What is that consolation? He's, it says that the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Christ. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Christ actually isn't Jesus' last name. Christ, uh, or in, in the Hebrew, the Messiah, uh, it's this term, it's a title, and it means anointed one, it means king. And so when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying first name, title, Jesus the king, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ. So what Simeon is waiting for is he's waiting for this king. He's waiting for his consolation. And the scene just erupts with action. Simeon is led into the temple. Uh, he takes this baby into his arms. And let's be honest, this isn't very different from our mornings here at Charles River Church. I'm willing to bet that if I asked you to show by hands how many of you have held someone else's baby or given your baby for someone else to hold, believe me, if you're new with us this morning, you stick around here long enough, you'll see we have a lot of children. We have a lot of children around here. We love our children, and we want to raise our children together as a church family. But this scene is a little bit different because it wasn't part of, you know, just the church family. They're showing up, and from what we can tell, Simeon is a complete stranger to them. And he comes up to Mary and Joseph. He receives this baby into his arms. And I want you for just a moment to enter into this intimate scene with me. Just imagine with me. You're, 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 you're Simeon, you take this baby into your arms and you look down. Oh, come, let us adore him. You know that magical moment when you look into the eyes of an innocent infant? So pure. But this time, this isn't just any infant. This is the savior of the world. And he's looking into his very eyes. I can just imagine him being overjoyed with sorrow. He probably, probably has tears coming down his face as the thing he's been waiting for his whole life is now here in an infant. Probably tears mixed of, of joy and sorrow. His lips are probably quivering as he thinks about all that this child is in his arms. Everything this child will be. His heart is probably throbbing. He's probably trying to swallow the truth of, of what, is, what is in his arms. And this is what he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation for Gentiles and a glory for your people Israel. It's safe to say that Simeon is excited. Simeon is ecstatic. Simeon is beholding the salvation of God. But see, we kind of take for granted that we, we know that Jesus is the salvation of God. And the reason we kind of take that for granted is because we get to see the whole picture. We know where Jesus goes later on in life, to the cross, to die for 
our sins. But from what we can tell, Simeon didn't know that. Simeon didn't know where Jesus was headed. So how on earth does he know who's in his arms? How does he know? Let me ask you this. Have you ever uh, turned on the television um, or maybe ch- changed the channel on the television and you, you, you see a movie and you've never seen this movie before, but you, you've come into it right in the middle of it and you can tell it's an important scene. Again, you've never seen it, so you don't know what happened before. But the reason you know the scene is important is because the way the characters are acting, the way they're responding to one another. The music is probably tense, and it's trying to captivate your attention and pull you in. And it so captivates your attention, you're thinking, wow, I want to go back and watch the rest of this movie. Because this seems to be really important to them, and it already seems to be important to me, but I don't know why. What we're witnessing here, Simeon's scene of pulling this baby into his arms, it's like coming into a movie that's halfway over. We don't exactly know why it's important to him yet, but we can know. We can know. He's waiting for this consolation. He's waiting for the king. He's waiting for the Messiah. Let me talk to you this morning about this grand narrative. Because where Simeon is, he's at the very beginning of the New Testament, kind of like this theological center of the Bible, meaning everything that happened in the Old Testament, everything happened in the New Testament, and right now it's culminating at this point of Jesus Christ, this baby. And so let me talk to you about this narrative of the Old Testament. Let me talk to you about what God has been up to for the first half of his grand narrative. The Bible is about God and his relationship to his creation. Most importantly to us. And the reason his, he, he has such a, 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 an affection with us is because he chose to place his very image on us. There's a special relationship between men and women and God. If we know the story of the, the Garden of uh, Eden, what happens is God has this very special relationship with Adam and Eve But Adam and Eve chose to trust themselves and the serpent over the word of God. Relationship was broken. Why was relationship broken? Because trust is a must in relationships. Someone say preach. Trust is a must in relationships. You don't have trust, everything falls apart. God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden. But God's not finished. God loves his creation. God loves you. He loves me. He loves mankind. He loves all of us. And so what God does is he then chooses Abraham. You might know this story too. God chooses this man, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you, not just for you, but I'm going to bless you and your family so that all the nations on earth will know. So he chooses Abraham. Abraham's family becomes Israel. Israel then is saved by God from a famine by going to Egypt. A new pharaoh decides to enslave them, so God then rescues them out of Egypt. God is on a rescue mission. He's after the hearts of men and women. It continues. He brings them into this promised land where everything is just going to be wonderful. God is their king, but the people don't want God as their king. So they say, give us a human king. We want a human king. So God in his mercy obliges And he gives them a human king. He sets up David. And just like he gave a promise to Abraham, he then gives a promise to David. And he says, David, I want you to know that a king from your family will always sit on the throne. It will be a kingdom that will never end. And that's the promise that's being hung on to. That a king will always sit from the line of David. But see, the story doesn't end there. Uh, The people continue to rebel, and you know what they do? Just like Adam and Eve didn't trust God in the garden, the people of God did not trust him in the promised land. They turned to idols. They turned to other things. They worship other things. And God's presence leaves them. It's one of the most depressing scenes in the whole Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, God's presence leaves them because they have chosen other things. The people end up being conquered 
uh, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. This is all in history. We can look at secular history and see this. They're conquered because God's presence has left. See, the prophets, they start to talk about a Messiah. They start to say, don't worry. Remember, remember that promise that was given to David? That king's coming. God is going to come back. And I want to read to you one of those prophecies this morning. It comes from the, the book of Isaiah. And, and I want us to just look at it and marvel at it. Um, this is Isaiah 42. Beginning in verse 1. You don't have to turn there. It should be on the screen behind me. Yes. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to a people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor, praise, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they bring forth I tell you of them. Do you see who Simeon believes he's holding in his arms? Simeon believes he's holding that servant. Simeon believes Jesus is the coming Messiah. Simeon believes he is the very presence of God returning to his people. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. Jesus is our consolation. Jesus is our comfort. Because Jesus is God's presence with us. So what are you waiting for? Your hope is already here. Jesus is your comfort, your consolation, your hope. His presence is what we need. But Andrew... I could put my hope in anything. I could put my hope in money, success, power, good health. Why on earth would I put my hope in Jesus? Because none of those other hopes deliver. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In, low, in life's most perplexing moments, you're not going to want money you're not going to care about success. You're not going to care about how, how, how good health you are. In life's most perplexing moments, what you're going to want is the comfort of another. If you're dealing and waiting for the pain of losing a loved one to depart from you, you don't want money. You want someone next to you. If you're waiting to have a child of your own and it just hasn't happened yet, you don't want success. You want a dear one right next to you, comforting you. If you're, if you're waiting to hear the prognosis from the doctors and you're not sure what the prognosis is going to be, you want that person next to you who's holding your hand. Because friends, there's nothing more important in life than relationships. The reason I believe that is because Nothing seems to cause more joy or more pain than relationships. There is nothing more important than relationships. And better yet, the most important relationship of all, the relationship to our God and King. Because what comforts, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> what comforts is the presence of God. That is why Simeon is so excited. 
That is why Simeon is so excited, because he's got this comfort in his arms. And you might be saying to me, Andrew, that's great, but we don't have Jesus. I mean, sure, yeah, we have Jesus in the scriptures, but we don't have him here with us now in the physical, you know? We know that comfort I was just telling you about. I'm going to get a little nerdy here. I hope it's okay. That comfort we were just talking about, that Jesus is our comfort. The word used in the Greek, it's called uh, periklesis. It means comfort or uh, uh, consolation. But there's someone else in the scripture who goes by a similar name, the paraclete. His name is the Holy Spirit. Believe it or not, my friends, Jesus even said to his disciples, it is better for you that I leave because unless I go, the comforter will not come to you. Friends, if you are doubting uh, God's comfort this morning, the Holy Spirit is your comfort. The same word used to describe Jesus is now used to describe the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is our comforter. He is the one who provides consolation. And I mean, what are parents to do? Okay, we just seen this incredible scene. What are parents to do? Look with me at verse 33. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Yeah, obviously. He just had a total stranger just come up to you and said, this is the Messiah, your son. They're marveling at it. But Simeon wasn't finished yet. Look what Simeon says. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is a sign, excuse me, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. Jesus is appointed for the rising and falling of many, and his parents are no exception. Sometimes we, we elevate Mary to a position that I don't think she would elevate herself to, and right here she doesn't seem to gain any exemption either. That a sword will pierce her very own soul, because that's what Jesus came to do. You know what happens when the presence of God comes? Our thoughts get exposed. If you've read through some of the New Testament, you know this. Jesus is walking around, and he's simply looking at people and telling tell them what they're thinking. I don't know about you, friends. My thoughts don't want to be exposed because my thoughts aren't always so good. But the story isn't over yet. We still have another friend to meet. I told you we we're going to meet two friends this morning who were waiting for this Messiah. Now we're going to meet Anna. We've met Simeon. He's pretty cool. Let's look at what Anna has to say as we start to finish this day up. Look with me at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and in prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him, that is Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's another pretty ordinary woman. Her name's Anna. You know, Anna, she's ordinary, but she's also extraordinary. You know why she's extraordinary? Because if she only lived for her husband seven years and she got uh, married probably around the age of 13 or 14, means she was widowed by about 20, and now she's 84, and it says from the time she was widowed until now when she's 84, she's been in the temple fasting and praying day and night. That's about 60 years, folks, of devoting herself to the Lord. That's pretty extraordinary. And Simeon, I think, just wants to highlight that and show us that, yes, she's ordinary, but she's devoted, just like Simeon was devoted. But she adds to the portrait that Simeon has already painted for us. You know, Simeon said Jesus is the, the comfort, the consolation, but now Anna wants to tell us that he's the redemption. Remember those bad thoughts I was talking about? Jesus is the redemption. 
But see, Simeon and Anna, they're not getting these words on their own. They're calling them straight out of the Old Testament. And Anna's doing the same thing here. I want to look at one more Old Testament passage with you. Bear with me. Let's, let's go to Isaiah 52. Uh, you're welcome to turn there or it'll just uh, appear on the screen behind me. And I want to read to you just this, this part from Isaiah 52 because it's again declaring just this, this time when, when God's presence returns to his people. Look with me at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up your voice, their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has barred his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. When she says this baby is the redemption of Jerusalem, she's pulling it right here from verse 9. But did you see what else it said? It said, for eye to eye, they will see the return of the Lord. Whose eyes? Who's seeing eye to eye? Simeon and the baby. He's staring salvation in the face. For eye to eye, you will see the return of the Lord to his people. Anna is proclaiming God's redemption for all who are waiting. Why? Remember I told you God's presence left in the Old Testament? It was this depressing scene in, in the book of Ezekiel. Why did God's presence leave? Idolatry. People hoped in other things. People gave their hearts and affections to other gods. They placed their hopes in idols, and the Bible says they became blind and deaf, just like those idols. Jesus came with redemption, and what were most of his miracles? Healing the blind and those who were deaf. What does this mean for us? What is this redemption? I was watching um, a Christmas carol um, with my, my parents over the holiday. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen it. Um, there's several renditions of it, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty terrifying tale. Um, if you don't know it, Ebenezer Scrooge is the main character, and he's a workaholic. He's recently lost one of his business partners, Jacob Marley, who is also a workaholic. And in some divine act, the spirit of Jacob Marley, his business partner, visits Ebenezer Scrooge one night. And Ebenezer Scrooge is terrified. And as he's looking at the ghost of his friend, he sees that he's covered in chains. And he asks the ghost, what are these? Why are you chained up? What are they? And this is what Jacob Marley replies. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. For Marley and Scrooge, their hope, their lives were in their work. What Jacob Marley is saying is those chains are my enslavement to my work. I didn't know they were there when I was alive, but man, they lock me up now. Brothers, sisters, friends, what are your chains? What do I mean by this? Well, you know, it's a good thing to want a promotion at work. But if it's all you're hoping in, all you're waiting for, you're enslaved. You're enslaved to it. You're in chains. Maybe, you know, it's a good thing to, to want your kid to succeed in life. But if you lie awake at night thinking how I'm going to get that kid into the best school or the best program to help them succeed, you're enslaved. You're in chains. 
You know, it's okay to want to put your best foot forward with everybody, but if you live and die by the approval of others, you're enslaved. You're in chains to that idol. What has claimed a foothold in your life? What has become an idol? What do you worship apart from God? The Israelites were enslaved to their idols. And often so are we as we still hope in things that we'll never save. But Jesus is our redemption. Friends, I want you to hear that. Jesus is our redemption. That word redemption, it means being liberated from an oppressive situation. Trusting him as our savior sets us free from our bondage. Jesus said himself, come to me who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you burdened, friends? Do you feel weighed down by the idols in your life that are demanding something from you more than you can give? Don't be enslaved. Jesus is your redemption. When we place our hope in Jesus, we are no longer shackled by the chains of our own making, like Jacob Marley. Come to Christ and be liberated. Some of you know I work with college students, and I just want to give you an example here. This summer, I was sitting around a campfire with some, with some college students, and I, I got to know this one um, gentleman. His name uh, was Kevin, is Kevin. And Kevin was speaking with me, and we were talking about the grace of God. And he looked at me dead in the face one night, and he said, Andrew, I don't think I can be forgiven. I just don't think I can be forgiven. I know all of us have probably been there. I don't think I can be given, forgiven for this or for that. And, you know, I began to, to show with him the gospel. I began to, 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 to share with him all that God has done for him. And, and as, as I shared this with him, I noticeably saw his eyes began to water. And, folks, that's a clue that something's going on in somebody's heart. And I just asked him, I said, what's, what's going on in your heart right now, Kevin? What's going on? And Kevin said to me, he's like, Andrew, I don't know if you know, but I, I'm beginning to cry. I didn't say this to him, but in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, I can, I can see that. And I said, Kevin, why are you crying? And his words were the most beautiful things I've heard in a long time. He said, Andrew, because there's hope. There's hope. Do you need that hope this morning? Do you need those shackles? I don't know what they are in your life, but do you need those shackles to be broken by the power of forgiveness and the redemption of our God? There's hope. Just like there is for Kevin, there's hope for you. So friends, here we are. It's New Year's Eve. And New Year's Eve is a day pregnant with hope. Right? We're on the threshold of a new year. For some of you, 2017 has crushed you under circumstances. And man, you're just longing for a fresh start. 2018, sign me up, let me get there. For others of you, 2017 wasn't so bad. In fact, you really love 2017. And what you're longing for is for 2018 to be even better or to be, be at least as good. What are you waiting for this new year? What do you already have your eyes set on? What are you adoring? Turn your eyes to Christ. Adore him. Behold him. Friends, today we learned what hope does. Two things that hope can do for us. Hope, hope remembers what God has done, but hope also gives in faith. But probably more importantly, what we learned is who hope is. Our hope is Christ. Maybe like Simeon today, you're waiting for consolation. You're waiting for comfort. What are you waiting for? Your hope is already here. Maybe you're like Anna. You're waiting with others for your own redemption. You're waiting for those chains in your life to just be broken off of you. What are you waiting for, friends? Your hope is already 
come. Jesus is your hope, and he is here. And you know what? He doesn't promise that 2018 is going to be a good year. Jesus doesn't promise that you won't suffer trials of many kinds. But if you place your faith and hope in Christ today, what he does promise is two things. He promises comfort because of his promise, or his presence. And he promises redemption because of his blood shed on a cross for you and me. So how are we going to walk into this new year? Two questions. First, I want you to ask God this question. God, what am I hoping in instead of you to give me a sense of control, worth, or identity? Second, we should all come to our Lord for our comfort and redemption, letting it produce rejoicing as it first did in the hearts of Simeon and Anna. What are you waiting for? Your hope is already here. His name is Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let us pray. Father God, I just pray and I hope that your presence is felt in the hearts of my brothers and sisters and friends in this room, that your comforting presence, Holy Spirit, is surrounding them, surrounding us, reminding us that you are with us. And Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who've never seen Jesus as our redemption. Lord Jesus, if we need redemption today, whether we've followed you for years or whether today is our first day saying, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, Lord, would you be our redemption? Would you break the chains off of us? Would you destroy every idol in our life that threatens to take our attention away from you? And would you so surround us with your presence that we know you more nearly and see you more clearly? Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning. Do your work in us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.